Well, good day, everyone. Thank you so much for being here, and thank you so much for listening and joining us here at First Baptist Rocky Top. We're, of course, glad that you're with us, however you were with us, and we're continuing our look at the, Christ- the Christian Scriptures. It will actually be part four in a series of messages that we've done, and today, specifically, we're going to begin to look at what the Bible has to say about morality. Now, Frank Sinatra, he's a household name to many people who grew up in the second half of the 20th century, and his career still has an undeniable influence on music. His top hits include I've Got the World on a String, That's Life, and the iconic New York, New York. One song, however, while it never reached the top 10 charts during Sinatra's lifetime, it has come to have a wide influence on the public. And the tune comes from a French pop song that I'll probably mispronounce, Comme de Habitue. But the lyrics were rewritten for Sinatra, and the song is My Way. Part of the lyrics go like this. For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he is not. Not to say the things that he truly feels, and not the words of someone who kneels. Let the record show I took all the blows and did it my way. It's a bold anthem of human determination and brazenness, and it brings up a moral question, even if you've never thought of the song that way. Who decides how I live my life? What is good and bad? What is right and wrong? Now, many people assume that others will do what is right just simply because it's the right thing to do. We just sort of know what is right and what is wrong intuitively. There's some truth to this, but this thinking is shallow and it fails to realize the influence of a Christian worldview on our society. For instance, why is it wrong to lie? Why is it wrong to steal? Why is it wrong to murder? There must be some moral law that guides us and tells us these things. We'll be visiting both the Old and New Testaments today, primarily the Old Testament, to answer the question, what does the Bible have to say about morality, or at least begin to answer that question. And if I asked you to think of a set of laws that we ought to follow, a list of commandments, many of you would undoubtedly reference the Ten Commandments that we find in the Old Testament. The Ten Commandments are revered and respected throughout the world and throughout history, as a strong moral guidance. Now, not everyone can name each of the Ten Commandments, but many can visualize two stone tablets with some ancient scribble-scrabble on them that calls humans to certain moral standards. But this delivery of the Ten Commandments that God gave was not an event in isolation. It was and is part of a much larger story in the Bible. Indeed, it is part of the entire grand epic arc, the grand biblical narrative, the perfect creation that God originally had, the fallen world that subsequently comes because of human disobedience, God's redemptive plan, and his acts throughout history to bring about this redemption. And so we're going to begin today with a story from the book of Exodus. This is the second book of the Bible. We'll be about halfway through it and pick up in Acts chapter, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 19. This is verse 1. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim 
and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him, Moses, out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now I'm going to back up a little bit and provide what I hope is some useful context for what God is doing at this moment with the nation of Israel. Now, please don't take this as an in-depth look. It's just an overview. God had chosen Israel as his special people, beginning with the patriarch Abraham. Abraham's descendants at the end of the book of Genesis had migrated to the land of Egypt. This involved Joseph, who we think of and many people know as the famous Joseph with the coat of many colors story. This story at the last part of the book of Genesis is one of the greatest providential stories in all of Scripture that foreshadows so much of the work that would be accomplished through Jesus Christ, but we will cover that another day. These Hebrews, or Israelites, or Jews as they would come to be called, migrate to Egypt with the number of about 70 persons. And when we turn the page from the last chapter of Genesis to the first chapter of Exodus, we are turning the page on 400 years of history. And times have changed. As the Hebrews had went down at the end of Genesis, they were viewed very favorably by the Egyptians. But now, the Hebrew people are no longer viewed in a special way by Egypt. They are enslaved. They are in bondage. They are in darkness in every possible way, spiritually, morally, emotionally, physically, by their Egyptian taskmasters. And because of this suffering, they begin to call on the Lord to rescue them. Now, God, in his master design, had been incubating Israel in the land of Egypt for four centuries. And now that number of 70 that journeyed down to join Joseph has grown to an estimated 2 million people. Indeed, Israel had bloomed into a giant nation under the watch of a pagan civilization. But they know little about God. We sometimes believe the illusion that people in the distant past, or even recent past, were far more faithful, religious, and morally upright than our decadent culture is today. Generally speaking, this is not true, and we see this in the language of Exodus and the actions that God takes with Moses and the Israelites. Effectively, God is reintroducing himself to the world through the Israelites. And he's putting his great redemptive plan, certainly not an afterthought, but he's putting his great redemptive plan now into motion. What had been lost to many people, the knowledge and relationship with the one true God, is now in the process of being restored. And it will be a long and arduous journey. So the Israelites are led out of Egypt by God using Moses and many dramatic acts of judgment take place. And finally, the Israelites find themselves at the foot of a mountain called Sinai, which is a very famous mountain in the biblical story. And this is where we find the opening of Exodus 19. It took them 
three months of trusting God to get to this place, but they finally arrived. They saw God's deliverance from Egypt, received his guidance on the way to go, saw his glorious victory at the Red Sea, received God's miraculous gift of food and water, and they saw a victory won over some of their enemies. Israel stayed in the wilderness of Sinai here, where this narrative really starts, until Numbers 10, which is another book of the Bible. Numbers chapter 10, that's more than 57 chapters of Scripture that are devoted to to what happened to Israel in the year that they camped at Mount Sinai. Now, when we read here the word wilderness, if you're like me, a lot of us kind of picture a very brown, sandy, dry, barren place. But this is not necessarily the case. It was a grazing country that would be in some ways rather lush, but it had not been settled by humanity. Now, there are periods in history, and we see it here, in which God makes himself known in very pronounced and very grandiose ways. The exodus out of Egypt and the formation of Israel as a nation was certainly one of these periods. And while I've not had the privilege of visiting Mount Sinai, in the modern day, I've, in fact, never had the privilege of going to the Holy Land. Perhaps that can be a bucket list event that occurs sometime in my life. I understand that the traditional site looks like a large pulpit of sorts, this steep outcropping from the mountain. And so God, at this location, would give a striking and transforming message to his people and to us. And he uses some interesting imagery. He says, I bore you, talking to the Israelites, I bore you on eagles' wings. That imagery of a very sweet and careful protection. And later on in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, pardon me, that metaphor, that imagery will be developed even further where we read the loving compassion, protection, and strength and watchfulness of God is compared with that of the majestic eagle. God says, I brought you to myself. This deliverance from bondage was to cultivate, to restore a relationship with Almighty God. God didn't deliver Israel so they could live apart from God, but so they could be God's people. And certainly that same invitation is open to us as well, but in an even greater way through Christ. Down in Exodus 19, verse 20, we read, The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called to Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So God came in a special presence at Mount Sinai. He was ready to meet Moses as the representative of the whole nation of Israel. And there, it's a very dramatic moment. And the response from many of the Israelites with this thunder and this lightning and this noise was one of fear and uncertainty. Yet Moses, we may forget, had already spent time with God. He had encountered God early in the story of Exodus at the burning bush. He had gotten to know God in a personal way. He was getting to know God, if you will. And Moses knew God not only in the terms of his awesome and sometimes fearful power, but also in terms of his gracious loving kindness. And in the very next statements, God gives us what would become the foundation of the moral law from God. Now, this is lengthy. This is Exodus 20. It's lengthy, but we're going to build from it today and next week. And it is one powerfully collective revelation that we find here. And in Exodus 20, we do find the very famous Ten Commandments. I'll begin reading in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when the people saw the thunder, and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Now there's certainly a lot going on in the scripture that we just read. Certainly God had spoken in many ways throughout history and continues to speak to communicate his truth and to get his point across. And here, his chosen method is the rare moment in which he speaks audibly and thunderously to the assembled group of people. God showed his desired relationship to the people, to all people, not just lofty religious leaders, priests, kings, or theologians, but he met with everyone. The whole encampment here the common man and woman, his chosen people. And he gives here clear, straightforward, understandable, beneficial guidelines, laws, commandments, a moral law to all people that was beneficial to all. And this chosen of method of delivery, this mighty presence, this voice of God, made the strongest, more authori- most authoritative impression upon the people possible. Now, these laws, these commandments were not invented that moment at Mount Sinai. Rather, here it was a codified restoration and confirmation of God's initial creation, his initial design, the moral law that was imprinted on the hearts of humanity at creation, showing our reflection of being created in the image of God. Unfortunately, now, though, we were tainted. Humanity needed the moral law revealed again, as well as new laws added. In his book, The Abolition of Man, C.S. Lewis, a very famous Christian author, explained how there are certain universal moralities among men. And he gave concrete examples of how all cultures in the past were able to agree on basics of morality because these principles were implanted in the heart, in the mind of mankind. For instance, all cultures have said murder is wrong, kindness is good. All agree that we have obligations to our families, 
All say that honesty is good and that a man cannot have any woman that he wants. We all agree that stealing is wrong and that justice is good. There are no cultures where cowardice is good and bravery is bad, he points out. However, even though many cultures have not bound down to the one true God collectively, there has been a recognition throughout history of some absolute moral laws. In our culture, though, especially in the West, this has been replaced by the do-it-your-way, the my-way path, discover your own truth, or do whatever makes you feel good. When man, not God, when man, not God, defines morality, destruction, and enslavement will be the only possible outcome. So this God-based morality, as he reveals to us, also established that his people, the nation of Israel, belonged to God. Sometimes these sections of the Bible are referred to as the law of Moses, and certainly Moses received these words and recorded them, but it's significant that this law came directly from the mouth of God. No man was to ever think of himself or allow others to think of himself as above the law. God was above all, and his laws were the expression and are the expression of his will. Humanity cannot make it on our own. We need God to morally instruct and guide us. We need to know that there is a God in heaven who expects certain moral behavior. God is a God of love and grace and mercy, but God is also a holy God and a God of justice, and there are consequences for obeying or disobeying his commands. And without belief in a transcendent, all-powerful, holy, and righteous God, as is revealed to us clearly in the Bible, it's impossible for us to answer the question, why? If we put God to the side or put him out of our society, it is impossible to answer the question, why, in response to any moral mandate. Why shouldn't I lie? Why shouldn't I steal? Why shouldn't I murder? And as I quipped a moment ago, the current trend is that morality should be based on an individual inner self of right and wrong, good or bad, and not upon the standard set by God. There's an obstinate desire to make our own morality apart from God or his revelation. This is exactly what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden at the fall of mankind, and that drama repeats itself hundreds of millions of times every single day in the heart of every single man. Some of you will recall that in the late 1980s, the famous media mogul Ted Turner actually made a suggestion to replace the Ten Commandments with his own called Ten Voluntary Initiatives, saying that commandments was too harsh of a word. Now certainly, Mr. Turner here fails to mention God in any way or religion in any way. And I'm not going to read all of these, but just a few of Ted Turner's voluntary initiatives. First one was, I promise to have love and respect for the planet Earth and living things their own, especially my fellow species, humankind. I promise to treat all persons everywhere with dignity, respect, and friendliness. I promise to have no more than two children, or no more than my nation suggests. I reject the use of force, in particular military force and back the United Nations arbitration of international disputes. I support the United Nations in its efforts to collectively improve the conditions of 
the planet. Now, the logical question is, why? Why should we do any of this if God is not the moral lawgiver? But as the classic, as a version of the classic saying goes, are you better off now than you were 40 years ago when these were first suggested? And in terms of morality and humanity blazing their own path apart from God, the answer would be an emphatic and roaring no. The Bible tells us that the law that God gives us is holy and just and good. We read in James, much later in the New Testament, that every good and perfect gift comes from God. And these commandments indeed are good gifts that came to Israel and that came to us at Mount Sinai. They're good, the Ten Commandments are, because they show the wise moral guidance from God. They answer the need of mankind for moral guidance. They give us a way to teach what is good and right and moral. They would, indeed, make the world so much better if obeyed, and they're good for all humanity. And they're good when they're promoted and held as ideals, even when they are not perfectly obeyed. I want to close with just a couple of these timeless takeaways. And the first is this, our relationship to God, to God defines our morality. Our relationship to God defines our morality. Jesus in the New Testament narrowed down the commandments to two statements. Certainly he did not dismiss the law. He fulfilled it. He literally fulfilled it. And these Ten Commandments were summarized by Jesus in Matthew 22, 35 through 40. A lawyer comes to Jesus and asks him a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, this simplification doesn't eliminate the Ten Commandments. It fulfills them, showing us that our heart and desire of God is for Him and His people. The problem is that many haven't kept these two commandments either. More importantly, though, we know that Jesus Himself was the only one to ever keep the law perfectly. He never needed to sacrifice for His own sin so he could be the perfect sacrifice for us. And wonderfully, his obedience is credited to us who put our love and trust in him. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8, verses 2 and 3, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's a central teaching in Scripture, and this is God's amazing promise to those who repent and believe in Jesus. And the second and last thing I will mention is a phrase that occurs there at the beginning of Exodus 19, a kingdom of priests. The Ten Commandments as the introduction to God's moral law gives us the great truth that will become more fully fleshed out in this whole grand story of Scripture. But allow me to revisit verse 5 of Exodus 19. God says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Before this time, it was believed that people had to go through elaborate ceremonies or high-ranking religious gurus to pray to God. But here, 
God tells the people that they are his special people. Once again, a kingdom of priests with direct access to Almighty God. But they would be the channel through which God would bring others to himself. God would cultivate Israel. He would teach them about his character, his mercy, his love, his laws. He would reveal to them his redemptive plan. He would work through prophets, priests, and kings. He would work despite prophets, priests, and kings. But the great and glorious moment that started to be unveiled at Mount Sinai was fully revealed in the face of Christ Jesus, our Lord. The author of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews 4.14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That is a beautiful, beautiful promise. So in closing, I opened this message with mentioning a song. And songs often give us a window into the mind of society as art does indeed so often imitate life. And the song I referenced at the beginning, My Way, embodies much of what contemporary people think. NPR, National Public Radio, ran a story on this song some time ago, and a survey from the United Kingdom indicated that since 2005, this song was the most played song at funerals. I did it my way. That was very sad to me, to think that a person's life was reduced to a jazz song that speaks of the obstinance of the human spirit and the irony that the person now lie motionless in a coffin. We can try to do it our way, but it will ultimately fail. God invited Israel and he invites us to choose life. I want us to point people to a greater truth at this church, and I hope to do that in my own life as well. The amazing grace of a loving God Those are the songs that we must hear as life draws to a close. Now, next week we'll learn much more about law and grace. Much more can be learned from this section of Scripture, and we'll look specifically some more at the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments, the law, all of these were not given to restrict humanity. They were given to liberate us and protect us from the destruction and consequences of sin. Ultimately, Jesus was the one who fulfilled and embodied God's moral law, truth, and love. And his righteousness is imparted to us when we choose to believe on him. Pray with me if you would. Heavenly Father, although the way you meet with us may not be as visible or dramatic or as intense as the way you met with Israel at Mount Sinai, you still come to us and meet with us where we are at. You meet us in our sin, our separation from you, and you call us not merely to a better way, though it is, but you call us to have life and to have it more abundantly and to have this life through Jesus. Help us to understand both your grace and truth as we study these scriptures. And please soften the hearts of humanity. Give us a hunger for you so that we may come to Christ and see you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.